Welcome to the Career Pod, brought to you by Transition Solutions. Our host for today's episode is our founder and CEO, Mr. Fred Studley. I'm Fred Studley, and I'll be your host for this discussion. Nancy Novak, a veteran senior leader in the construction industry, will be joining us. Nancy has had overall responsibility for billions of dollars in construction sites for a wide variety of industries. One of her most notable projects was the post-9-11 Pentagon reconstruction. A most sought-after speaker on management and women's issues, Nancy describes her family influence on her career, her work ethic, her recommendations for effective management style, and her views on careers in construction. Okay, well, today we're at CareerPod. Nancy Novak is joining us. Nancy, very nice to have you with us today. Very good to be here, Fred. Thank you for asking me. Now, Nancy, we'll be talking about your career in construction. Uh, You've had a parallel life in terms of, uh, you know, making presentations and being a sought-after speaker in a number of different venues. But let's start in the uh, early years. Uh, Tell us about your early life and education and maybe some factors or people that may have influenced your your career. Well, I was... um So I was born in Minnesota, and I left at a very young age for Arizona because my father is in construction. And um, throughout my youth, my father traveled worldwide um, building things for the largest, at the time, the largest contractor in the world um, called MK. And and then during the summer months, he would take us as children out to construction sites with him. So my, my, me and my twin sister both went into the business, um, just kind of fell in love with the business, actually. Um, and it was a big advantage for me to have my dad as kind of like um, someone to set the bar for me on what my expectations should be. But after we left Minnesota, we went to Arizona following his career. And then after Arizona, he had to move to California for a project. So that's where I ended up finishing high school and going to college um, and getting my degree in construction management. Which, you know, but at the time, that, I don't want to give away my age, but at the time, construction management was a very new degree um, program in colleges around the nation. So, um, so I went ahead and did that because I wanted to have an advantage and more credential to be able to grow in, in that career path. Yeah, and um, just a question about uh, what did the classroom look like? Were they all men or all some women or was it fairly representative? Oh, no, back... Yeah, back then it was pretty much all men. I mean, I was, it was, you know, I'm, I'm, I think I'm one of the older generation of women in construction, even though I know a few that are older than I am. And honestly, the classroom was all men except for me. And that's how pretty much my entire career and every position I've been in, in the division, I've been the only female in that position. So, you know, it it does age me to say that. I realize that. Okay. (laughs) But I I was going to tell you, as a quick aside on this, my dad, who is, you know, a wonderful person and great and talented in construction, everyone always felt like I took after him because he's very, um, he's very aggressive. You know, he called him Big Al. But one thing that people always ask me is, Nancy, did you get your um, abilities and your aggressive approach to life and in your career from your father, who you know, worked all over the world as a general superintendent. And um, I always tell them, you know, even though he will be the one that says, yes, I taught her everything she knows, I always tell people where well, I've got my, my best attributes from my mother, who's a very tenacious woman who put up with my father for many years. 
um, and, and was, was very good about teaching us about persistence and attitude and, um, you know, just making the best of things and not giving up. And so that's, that's who I would say gave me my strength. Well, that's great. And how about the, the early parts of your career? Let's focus on the first 10 years. What was your first uh, entry-level position? So I started out actually in um, quality. Um, I was I, I, my um, I minored in construction technology, so I was I was kind of one of those nerds who really enjoyed understanding the technology behind the construction means and methods. So I started out at um, in a godforsaken place called Fort Irwin, California, on a project building barracks for the army, and um, and I started to learn each one of the trades and every discipline through the quality process, um, and I was very inquisitive. Um, and I, I, I would ask lots and lots of questions, you know, from every one of the disciplines so I could really understand, you know, not just from a design standpoint, but from an execution standpoint, how the work went into place. Okay. Um, so that was kind of the, I'd say the first 10 years of my career was a lot of military work. I, I bounced around in the high desert of California at different military installations, building things like hospitals and barracks and ammo bunkers, um, you know, hangars, things like that. Okay. And, and if you updated that question, uh, would you recommend others looking to getting into the construction field in, in terms of uh, the types of environments you've worked in? Is quality a, a good entry-level position because you have the breadth of exposure? Or since that time, there are better feeder positions? Any, any comment on that? Well, so I would say, um, personally, I, I do think that going into quality first makes you a, a better supervisor and a better manager when it comes to, you know, understanding scope. Um, so I think it's when you want to really get into the nitty-gritty details about understanding what you're building, there's no better place to start than a, a quality position. However, on the downside, um, the quality positions aren't usually revered as much in our business as the risk-taking positions, so they're not usually compensated as well. Um, so it's definitely what I would call a stepping stone. It, if you're looking for career advancement, it's a great place to start, but it has to be like one of those things that you're very um, conscious of making a stepping stone where you're trying to perfect your craft. In fact, I know some of the employees I've had that started out like in estimating or other areas that asked me if they could go back into the field as a quality rep with the intention of just knowing more about means and methods and how work goes in place so they can move back into their other, you know, okay. um, career path. Yeah, oftentimes organizations will have rotation uh, programs and sometimes formal, sometimes more informal. Uh, and I guess the field, uh, I did a little research on you and I guess the, the, the general field of construction of probably of necessity is spending more time developing talent, whether it be male or female, uh, through programs or exposure or, or whatever. I guess that, that is a change you probably have seen over your tenure. Yeah, there's definitely a lot more certification programs you can take, you know, for um, lots of different things, whether it's design build or, you know, lead accreditation or, you know, um, safety, you know, courses, there's, there's way more certifications that we can educate our people and bring credentials, you know, to the business. Um, but I, you know, time in the saddle of building things, start to finish, you know, cradle to grave kind of stuff. That's the best education always. It really does follow the project, I guess. And 
most of the time if you're there it's beginning to end like you're saying cradle to grave uh Mm-hmm. And I guess that that must be a source of satisfaction, mm-hmm. generically, I guess. It is. I always tell people, like, I've had, you know, some uh, managers in my in my career who have said they've always gotten lucky and skipped out before a job had to get closed, or they've kind of picked it up, you know, halfway through um, right. in rotation on some of the larger projects. But I highly recommend, I when I, I tell the people I mentor, like, don't skip any steps. Do it all. Um, starting and finishing a project is, is a huge accomplishment and taking, you know, being accountable for, you know, what you're responsible for is, is also a very big deal. Um, and this is, this is what ends up happening is, you know, you just get to where you can, you talk the talk and then people recognize that and then, you know, they rely on you. And that's really, I think, why some of those employees of mine wanted to go back into the field. They said, I just want to be able to talk about construction the way you talk about it and, there's no other way to really gain that knowledge without putting your hands on it. Okay. Now, if we're going back and focusing on those first 10 years where you you went up through quality, became a quality control manager, and, uh, you know, it, it was rewarding in that you had a lot of breadth of, you know, knowledge and probably learning every day. Uh, what were the frustrations in that early part of your career? <laughs> the biggest frustration was, when like superintendents didn't really understand what I was doing. So, and sometimes the trades people would get frustrated because I'm, I'm trying to make sure that the, you know, that the mixed designs are exactly what was purchased and they want to place concrete and I'm not happy with the mixed design. And I'm telling them, you know, that changes have to take place. Um, and so I, I got a lot of pushback sometimes from the supervision about, you know, I don't know, focusing on things that maybe weren't their priority but I knew that there was risk involved and, in, you know, allowing things to happen. So, so there was a little bit of frustration there and, and, and really just kind of that whole respect of, you know, understanding that, you know, just like everything, Fred, you have to look at production and everybody wants to make money. And if you're having to slow things down to do things for the proper quality or take, you know, safety measures, um, then it, then you're not necessarily going to be as profitable, but, if you have to rework or tear stuff out or, you know, you lose your reputation, you lose morale on the job, you lose all kinds of money. So the price you pay for not, you know, following the processes and really doing a good job is higher than what you pay for, you know, in, instituting that. But it was, it was a mind shift that I had to get through. And, yeah. and I did, but, but it was definitely frustrating in the beginning to have to work through that. I guess it makes a big difference, the project manager that you're supporting and whether or not that person understands your mission vis-a-vis the, the overall project. Did you, were you fortunate that most of the project managers that ultimately you reported to got that and uh, could uh, have your back, so to speak? Well, the first PM I ever worked for was great, and he totally had my back. Not all of them were that way um, throughout the first parts of my career. Um, it's funny because I, like, when I became a manager, too, I was told by our corporate counsel that, you know, I wrote some of the best contracts. And the reason for that is because I understood the scope better than yep. most managers who had never, you know, gone through those steps. So, um, so you can see the value, like, in hindsight. But, but um, I did get support from, you know, the first manager I ever worked for. Um, and, and then I think he, he became a vice president. So he was good... It was good to see that progression because people started to figure out, 
um, that this was very valuable. And I have to tell you, like later in my career when I was an officer, we had a huge corporate seminar all about the cost of quality and why it was so critical. And it was just music to my ears because I was, oh, you know, after all, all of the <laughs> beginning of my career, I was like, this is what I've been waiting for. So it was good. Well, I'm glad you got rewarded for that. Okay. Uh, now, you, which leads into the whole subject of mentoring. Uh, were you fortunate to have mentors in your early parts of your career? Um, so I, I would say early in my career, um, probably not, not too many mentors other than my dad, um, who, you know, who was always testing me, you know, because he wanted us to be the best. And so, um, not, not too many early in my career. I would say that first manager I was mentioning to you um, when I was working at Camp Pendleton was one of one of the people I highly respect to this day because he was always um, very generous about asking for your opinion and made you feel like your opinion mattered, you know, and, and the knowledge you had was, was something that you could contribute um, to the success of the project with. So I always try to follow that, that kind of um, person. I've had a few superintendents who have told me like, you know, Nancy, the best thing about you is you always do what you say you're going to do. And I've always tried to live up to those kinds of things. And I look at those people as mentors. And then definitely later in my career, um, the, uh, the CEO of our company was one of my mentors. And I had to say, Fred, it's kind of weird to have that level of person be your mentor. Right. However, um, we did anchor a district together. And I, since I was the only female um, officer for so many years, I think his support of my career and giving me the amount of work um, to, you know, to run that was at risk um, kind of forced the situation to where he wanted to see me be successful. Yep. And that made him my mentor, you know. But how did you take advantage uh, in a positive way of, of a mentor? How did you work that? Well, it's um, so we, part, part of the way our mentorship in, in, from that level um, developed was um, I had I was working on the West Coast and I was pursuing a very large project that was very new to our our company in the aerospace and so a little very risky and then, and another individual that was you know a huge uh, mentor in my career was the VP on the West Coast who allowed me all the rope I needed to go pursue this but what ended up happening when we were successful was um, the the current CEO ended up you know what we call landing the district in this area. And we had to work very closely in order to build that district together. And the project that I was in charge of was kind of the, the, you know, the bread and butter, you know, to get us started and, and keep everybody fed to grow that district. So that, so that was great because it kept, it, it got us to where we had to work closely and my success was his success and vice versa. But I have to say, like, you know, just over time, we, you know, we became friends and we got to know each other personally. And I'll never forget the day he gave me some of the best advice. And I might be doing this right now, but <laughs> some of the best advice I ever got. And that was when he told me that I let my facts get in the way of my message. And I remember sitting there for a minute and I told him, I said, why didn't you tell me that 10 years ago? Because, <laughs> <laughs> because it's true. You know, I do, I, because, and I don't know if it's part of just my nerdy part or my female part, but having to build up, you know, all of the facts on why my message is valid was something that I did a lot. And I think a lot of women do that. And I, it didn't occur to me that that, that was getting the, in the way of my message. And mm -hmm. I had to restructure how I communicated based on that really good advice. Uh, give, can you give us an example of 
you know, and you may want to dumb it down because we're not in the industry, yeah. but yeah. give us, give us uh, maybe an example of that. Well, so like, for instance, you know, we come, I, I ran a lot of projects all at once and we, we come up with projects that have problems. And so if you want to go report a problem to somebody so they don't get caught off guard or you need support, um, you know, what I would typically do is go in and start talking about, you know, the schedule issue and the sequencing and why this went wrong and this subcontractor did that and then the owner did this and then something changed. And I would start to build up to, oh, and in the end, what we need to do is resequence these two disciplines and that way we can pick up three months worth of time. So my message was I need to resequence these two things. And in, in the buildup to getting to why that has to happen, I would lose my audience. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. And I'm reminded of uh, a practice I kind of fell into. And it's kind of sandwiching. If you have an objection and it's negative and it's similar to your storytelling, you start with positives. And then in between one loaf of uh, slice of bread, you bit in all the negatives and then you end positively. Because the yeah. the way people listen, you know, they 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 can yeah. shut off so very quickly, and uh, I think it's yeah. it's a great skill to have, and it's good that you got it ten years later than you wanted it, but you nevertheless uh, got it, so that's good. I share it all the time now, okay. <laughs> and now I share it though. All right, like, this that's... is good advice. <laughs> it is. Now, in terms of let's go to mid career. Now you're managing bigger and bigger projects, and it probably would make sense to hit a pause button here and just give us the 30,000 foot look at your, your company, the last couple companies you've worked in and, and just give us a sense of scale of projects and uh, a little bit, uh, we'll talk about role in a minute, but just put, put your job in some context. Well, so um, I would say so mid-management, which is uh, in the company I worked for for the tw first 20 years before I retired for the first time, was an employee-owned company. And to put it in perspective, and especially for people seeking construction careers, a project manager at the company I worked with for 20 years had, had more authority than many of the vice presidents and other competitors. And when I, what I mean by that is, and it's important to know that because it's a it's a it's a level of position where you where you're managing hundreds of I was managing hundreds of millions of dollars worth of work, and um, and it's important to note the accountability you have. So that's one of the reasons why we use as a, as a business an excuse for why we women weren't getting advanced because there's so much risk involved, and at the project management level, you're signatory on all of the contracts, on all of the change orders, on you know, um, un, pretty much unlimited. Um, authority in that regard without, you know, with oversight, right? So, mm -hmm. um, so I, I, as my mid-management career, I was, I started to chase jobs um, in aerospace and I was running multiple projects on the West Coast as a manager and in a diverse setting, you know, I was doing like industrial projects and some commercial projects and things like that. And in the meantime, chasing an aerospace project. And I, um, I definitely, uh, was excited about the aerospace project. And when I landed that project, I was told by some of my peers, just because you're chasing that job doesn't mean you're going to get to run it, you know, because it was a very big deal. And, yep. and I was just thought to them, well, that's crazy. Why would I not get to run it? It's why I'm chasing it. And of course that all was wrong. I mean, I got, I ran the project and it was, you know, very exciting, but that was what happened during my mid career. And that was about a $300 million project um, that was very dynamic. And, 
you know, ended up being um, a launching pad for me to move on to my next project as a project manager, and that was the Pentagon renovation, which ended up in the end being $1.6 billion, um, and it started out at about a $700 million project. Um, the, the contract was awarded just two days before the plane hit the building, so mm. that was a very traumatic traumatic exercise and very interesting, very fascinating project. Um, took 10 years to build and, you know, we had to accelerate to do that after the planes hit because of the, you know, the exponential growth there. But that was, so those were the kinds of projects I ran as a project manager before I became an officer. Obviously at one level, it was very rewarding just because of the, the post 9-11, you know, uh, emotions. Uh, How about challenges with that? Uh, What were the biggest challenges? You know, it was, it was very emotional. Um, there was, um, you know, there was just a fear factor of something happening again. So there yeah. was a lot of high emotions, obviously, because of the terrorist attack. But the, I would say the biggest challenges were just the um, understanding that we had to normalize change. So, you know, I, I had just done a launch facility. So obviously, I was used to the change normalization. And what was, what I always like to do is I call it kind of like the restaurant example where you know how in the in the dining room everything is very calm and and predictable and back in the kitchen it's all chaos right right so so my mentality was on these really dynamic projects where you can see the the scope is evolving because it's either a prototype or you know in a situation like the pentagon you want your staff to just kind of be in the dining room setting where they they know what to expect it's predictable they know how to respond to things and then behind the scenes it's chaos because the change is evolving constantly. Right. And that's kind of just the way I would set up my project so that, so that, you know, we, you know, had good records of what we were supposed to do. Cause really when it gets, when you, when you think about construction, Fred, the, uh, the number one thing is the trades people just want to know what to do. They just need clear direction. And then and in a world that's evolving and changing constantly, it's really hard to do that. You know, when you're having to order materials and install them and, and, you know, some things take long lead times and then design changes and needs change and things like that. So just keeping that calmness in the field is, is a real challenge. And, and um, you know, that's, that's what I focus on. And that was probably my biggest challenge on the Pentagon. Okay. Uh, what's your succinct definition of your, your management style? Well, I would have, I would actually go to other people who have told me this because <laughs> I, I mean, I think other no, people. No, wait a minute. If I could just that. interject, it's okay to brag. You don't have to say third person said this. So, but let's, let's go. No, we'll, we'll, we'll go with your, your setup. But I agree with that. I would, so I will, I'm going to brag because I will agree with them. And what I've been told is, um, you know, that, that I always start with the end in mind. That's one of my management styles. I, so I put myself, I have a lot of empathy. I put myself in the owner's shoes and what I would expect if I were the owner or the end user or the client. I put myself in the, um, in the, in the worker's shoes, whether I'm, it's a tradesperson, um, you know, understanding crew flow, understanding production, understanding how they're trying to be successful on the job, whether it's a specialty contractor. And I, I try to do the same thing with my staff. You know, when, when I was in that position, when I was a manager, when I was a superintendent, when I was in one of these other roles, you know, what was, what was my challenges? And I, I think my style has a lot to do with just trying to put myself in their shoes. And then I would say the second thing um, is that it's a, I'm very patient. So I have, there's many times employees, you know, need to be talked off the ledge. They, they care, they're passionate, they're trying their hardest, but 
you know, they, they take a little bit of work to, to glean the brilliance from them, right? So I'm willing to invest the 30 or 40 minutes to get the five or six minutes of gold out of an employee by letting them vent and talk and work through an issue so I can, you know, pluck out the best. And, and I think that's something that a lot of managers struggle with. Right. You know, it does strike me, we've all been involved in a residential project or something like that that involves construction, and it is a kind of a delicate dance that has to be kind of choreographed because the the people that lay the forms, you know, they tend to, they're coming in late, the carpenters are doing the framing, they're waiting on the forms, so there's a friction point there, the finished carpenters, the plumbers, and they're not all in perfect harmony. They're all kind of going sideways oftentimes. I see you, I, I suspect you see that on a much bigger scale. It's, I, it's, I say it on a very large scale, but it's, a, it's, a, it's all the variables. Yeah. But it's what makes our business exciting because think about it. This is When I recruit people, I always tell them one of the things that they'll never, ever happen, that will never happen to them in this business if they, um, if they embrace it, is you'll never be bored. You'll right. never be bored. Every project, it's new people. You meet all new tradespeople, new subcontractors, new owners, new clients, new, new industries. And you learn about every industry you build for. If you're building a hospital or a museum or a school or an office building or a launch pad, you learn about those industries. And it's fascinating, you know. And so if you like to learn, um, it's an extremely exciting job to have. Now, one question we ask everybody uh, is the effect and impact that emerging technologies have had on this type of position, and I suspect it's huge. What kind of impact has emerging technologies had? Well, I do. I actually speak about this, um, especially when it comes to what we call agile construction, and um, and then also how it ties into, the, um, in my opinion, changing the industry to become more inclusive. There's there's tons of really complicated programs that help us schedule and design in 3D. We have virtual reality. We have augmented reality. We have, you know, um, you know, all kinds of software products that um, have logic behind them and huge algorithms that help us do our job. In fact, the challenge is to try to pare it down to where you don't have too many overlapping technologies. And then the other challenge is, you know, is, is mastering one before the next one comes out, just like any industry. Right. So it has had a, a huge impact on, um, you know, the, fa the speed of how we do business and how we collaborate with each other. We still have a long way to go, in my opinion, because um, I think construction, even though we have these technologies, we're slow to adopt to them um, because, you know, we just we do things a certain way. And um, so as an example, I speak a lot about trying to move more into the offsite manufacturing world. And nowadays, since there's a huge shortage on skilled labor, you know, that's all the more necessary to do more with less and try to um, figure out from a design standpoint, you know, how to plan around getting more of our infrastructure in an offsite manufacturing mode. Um, just think about that. If we could do that, not only is it safer and the quality can be well enhanced, but it's also faster and um, you can be more inclusive. At an offsite manufacturing plant, you can put a daycare. You can you can have more women join you. Um, you can have regular hours. And in fact, they did a study up in New York. Um, Barclays did a study where they had a stick built facility and an offsite manufacturer facility, and they were concerned about the, that the unions would be upset because they would have to take a pay cut to work in a in an offsite manufacturing facility. And when the unions found out that they 
didn't have to travel across town, didn't have to work out in the weather and the elements, um, were able to, you know, work nine to five and commute home in a reasonable hour. They're like, I'm happy to take a pay cut. This right. is a much better lifestyle for me, right? Yep. So those kinds of technologies we're moving towards, and, and they are going to make a big difference. And, and we're going to be forced to do it, Fred. Even if it's been slow, they've been around for a while, but pretty soon what happens is, you know, it's the necessity of need, and and we'll be forced to do it because we won't have the skilled labor to put the work in place the way mm-hmm. we have done traditionally in the past. Okay. So. Now, it kind of segues into a, an area that you have depth uh, expertise and you've lived the life and and I think you talk the talk now and that is the whole issue of women in work specifically in your industry and beyond uh, it, uh, did this passion come from your life experience is it kind of a calling or something you feel strongly of or is it necessity that you just spoke to well I mean I I have two daughters obviously and I know I always hate it when I have people who say you know, I finally figured out that I should work on this because I, it affects me personally, right? Yeah. And it's always affected me personally because I'm a, a woman in construction. And, and I've had a very good career, very successful, and I've been very lucky. Um, and I can talk to you about the luck factor as well. Yeah. But, um, but I have to say, like, you know, being good isn't necessarily fair. And I don't – I moved 17 times with kids in tow. And I don't condone that. And I, I'm, I'm probably not the only, you know, human in construction that's done that, man, man or woman. But I have to tell you that part of the driving factor was that, you know, I was in, a, in an age where, you know, you couldn't talk about whether your kids had chicken pox or whether they were in school or whether they were, because, you know, because they were anchors. They, were, they would be, you know, it was like the lack of um, flexibility when you were a mother um, was something that was very, um, looked down upon in my career. Um, that's the first thing they would get asked, you know, to young women when they were going to be hired. And even though it's not legal to say it now, it would be like, what, what's going to happen when you have kids? Right. Where men don't get asked those questions, right? Yep. So um, so I, after years and years of dealing with this, I always thought, you know, in, in life, I, I always felt like I should do something to make a difference. I should try to help this. This should be something that we shouldn't have to be dealing with and, you know, going forward. And it just felt like um, the right thing for me to do. So I'm very passionate about it. I care a lot about it. And I also, it's not a man versus woman thing. I know you know this, but yeah. it's um, it's it's a, you know, what you solve a problem for one gender, you solve it for both. Right. And it's, it's good for humans in general. So, How about uh, general advice for the women uh, listening in terms of career, both in construction or just beyond that? Uh, what lessons have you picked up along the way of working through, you know, well, chauvinism and and uh, uh, having to prove your worth more than your contemporaries in some ways. Uh, what general advice do you give uh, women? Well, I mean, I would say that the couple of things that I think would make a difference and would have made a difference for me as well is as getting better at networking. And when I say networking, I don't mean like passing your business card and trying to trying to do a business transaction in a conference. I mean, getting to know other people, whether they're professionals in your field or related to your field or even outside of your field, like just really connecting with other people and gaining knowledge and connecting dots that way. I think that's huge. I think men are very good at it. I think they do it in very uh, a lot of times in organic settings that allow them um, a more personal relationship. 
that matters greatly when you're looking for advocacy, you know, within within your firm and within your industry. And um, and women need to get good at that, and they need to practice it all the time. Um, and then I, I I would also say like when it comes to the advocacy part and trying to be seen for the your potential and not just your credentials, you know. Figuring out a way to get to know your peer group, your direct peers, and your superiors, both personally and professionally, is also critical. Because mm. we're humans, and human, humans advocate for those they know the best. I do it. And, you know, everybody does that. So if you're not really trying to figure out how to get to know your superiors or your peers on both a personal and professional level, you know, in a respectful way, um, then you're going to, you're going to have a, a document, you know, when it comes to, you know, promotions and advancement and, you know, basically having someone take you under their wing and show you the road. Yeah. It's interesting you bring that up because one of the last discussions I had was, uh, Nancy Babine Kaczynski and she, uh, had some of her formative training in Reebok and two things she said, one was to get visible and in her case, she started running and she ran with some general managers and some other people and they, she was visible. And then the second thing she brought up, which is akin to what you're saying was get to know your peer group and who, what, what are the connections between your peer group? Does Bill know Frank because they used to work together or they live in the same town and it, it sets up when you want to get something done you have a comfort of knowing who who tends to be allies of one another, even before you start launching your initiatives and so forth. So it's it's all in that networking and the you reference it organically that men do it, uh, that that women kind of have to commit some energy to this, and uh, it it can really pay off. So interesting. Uh, yeah, you you pick up the phone when when it's someone you know. Right. And you say, hey, I have a question. I think I'll call Joe or I'll call you know, Nancy, right? Um, it's, if they know you, it's so much easier for them just to pick up the phone and say, hey, Nancy, I have a question. I, I know you did this kind of a job before, and I'm trying to deal with this, and what do you think about that? Right. If they know you, they're, they're more apt to do that and to rely on you and vice versa than if they just have heard of you or seen you in a meeting or don't really know who you are. You know, it's just it's human nature. So it's very, very important. Now, in your case, uh, you were a stayer in, in some companies for fairly long periods of time. Uh, so you can even speak to others and not maybe your own experience. But why would you think a person should consider leaving a job? What what tends to be the the triggering, uh, you know, situation or experience? Well, I, I always say, and I, I I'm not sure if everyone agrees. I always say people quit people. They don't quit companies. It's usually, it's, you know, I've always been a very loyal employee and I, I, um, I definitely, um, you know, I was with an employee owned company. That's to say like, if I, if there was lack of opportunity, lack of advancement where you just felt like you were hitting that feeling and there was, you know, you weren't, you weren't going to get the proper training or the, or the, um, you know, the mentorship or whatever it was going to take to move you along. That to me would be a deal breaker okay. um, when it comes to moving firms. Yeah, and studies consistently have shown the number one reason people leave their jobs uh, is my supervisor, whether it be an executive or a first-line supervisor. So you're, you're right that uh, people quit, not the company, they quit people. So uh, looking yeah. looking at, uh, you know, the issue of luck and bad luck and 
you've had some good luck. Uh, any particular piece of good luck, either a person you met, or a, a project that made your career, or uh, something you didn't do that was good luck. Well, so I used to, <laughs> I, I used to say, like you know, I've been so fortunate that I've gotten to do the biggest, baddest, coolest, you know, jobs in the country. Um, I just have done some of the most exciting things. I've met the, the neatest owners, whether it's Lockheed or Smithsonian or the government, and, you know, all this, these really amazing projects, right? And, and then all the cool people associated with them. So I've always felt very fortunate that I've had that kind of exposure. And what I've been told um, after I mentioned how great that is, is that, um, you know, I'm the, they're like, Nancy, you're the one who got up at 4.30 in the morning and drove out to BF Nowhere in the high desert to go do the work that you did. And you're the one who, you know, pushed really hard to go chase the launch facilities against, you know, a lot of resistance within the company, including, you know, some senior people who thought you were crazy. And, you know, you're the one who really pushed those envelopes. So, yeah, you're, you know, lucky is, is one thing. But, you know, really, um, you know, being that person who wants to, make that difference or like in my opinion or my own position was um, a job chaser. I call it a job chaser. Like I really want to go build this. I really want to go build that. I'm very interested in these kinds of things. Um, and just kind of taking that initiative um, adds to that, adds to that success. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And I would say when it, when it kind of, I mean, honestly, Fred, I can't think of just a situation where I just fell into the lucky bucket. I mean, there's been, other than the perfect storm of good times and bad times that everybody got to experience, Right. Um, for the most part, I, I think I took charge of my own direction. Good. And I think, uh, again, for some of the listeners, especially the younger listeners, uh, it's almost uh, a gold standard of just the, the value of hard work and getting there early, staying late, uh, when you run out of work, ask for more work. It's in, and as you get further in a career, it takes different shape. But by then, your reputation has been built. So for those recent college hires or people that are working, uh, the number one thing you can do is build a strong, we call it brand now, but it's a good, strong reputation through hard work. So, And, and I would add to that, um, a great attitude. Like nobody yeah. wants a whiner, right? Even in the heat of the day or the, you know, the mucky rain or whatever it is, you know, just being the person that's got that smile and has the energy, um, everybody wants to be around that person. And, and it's good to have that attitude. I used to have two signs on my desk and they were the things that my mother taught me. And it was persistence and attitude are omnipotent. They can overcome anything. Mm. So those two things, in my opinion, are super important for any young person in a career, even when times are good, which right now, they're, they're pretty good for mm -hmm. young people, but they're still, it's still very relevant. Well, that's good. That's good advice. Uh, if you hadn't gone into construction, and I think if, if it hadn't been construction, what do you think it might have been? That's I've never had anyone ask me that question. Um, my mom was a nurse, and I never would have been able to do that. And the sight of blood so, and that uh, whole thing, right? Okay. Yeah, and I'm not artistic. Um, the best thing I do with my creativity is write really cool contracts. So I, I would have to say, um, I, you know, I, I've never ever thought of doing anything besides uh, being in construction, and and that that definitely I have to give my dad credit for that because he's the one who introduced me to it. Um, and, I, and this is the other thing I guess I should say. 
like I, I retired, you know, I retired back in 2010 and I took four years off. And then um, I, I serendipitously got handed a, a national VP position with a global firm because I, I ran into them during a procurement while I was retired. And then again, while I was skiing and I remember telling them like, you know, they said, are you, you're not going to stay retired forever. Are you You're still quite young? And I was like, well, I want to go back in the business, but I really didn't want to run work because running work takes all of my time, you know, right. and, but I only know how to do one thing. So to your point about what else would I have done, I really only know how to make money one way and it's building. And so <laughs> okay. I have, I, I have you, this skill set and it's, I don't know how, I don't know what else to do. Right. I just don't. <laughs> well, let me ask a question. I think uh, most listeners are riveted by this discussion. Anyway, uh, have you ever torn anything down? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. I've well, that, black yeah. charges and, Demo, okay, yeah. so, okay, so you've done demo. So it isn't just solely building. You've, you've had a wrecking ball occasionally. So, and you, did you, yeah, did, yeah. Did you set off the charge that blew up something? Did you well, hit we the actually, plunger? We, had, we set off a charge that we did. A, we took the MST, which is the mobile service tower, and the umbilical tower down at LT41 at Cape Canaveral. And we had a charitable event where we had a, a young um, a child got to go push the charge to blow the towers down. It's very <laughs> exciting. Which is another thing I love about our business is you get to be involved with the community. You get to do things that locals, you know, um, that matter to them. And that kind of adds, I think, to the enjoyment of the, of the job. Uh, on a 10-point scale, how, how would you rate your career? I mean, I, since I, I said, since I'm very limited <laughs> in my, my own little world of what I know how to do, I would, I would put my career up there by a 10 when it comes to just satisfaction and um, – you know, and being successful. Although I, I do think that if I had had more, um, I guess, more information about gender equality, the the term success or the measurement of success might have been different. Yeah. Um, but I think you know, for my for my moment in time, that um, it's it's about as than I could have expected, and I surpassed. I, did, I really literally surpassed all my expectations. So putting that in context is also, I think, important. Where many of the men I worked with didn't pass their expectations, I felt like I blew by mine, and, and we were at the same level. So I right. felt like, well, you know, you just, you had, you know, I was not born with the same expectations. So there's that, too. Yeah, that's true. And uh, one uh, career-related subject, you have got into public speaking and, and forums. You've been active in, whether it be industry uh, groups or, or beyond in, in general industry. Uh, how have you enjoyed that kind of experience? And for those that wanted to get involved in a similar way, uh, how did you go about it? Were you, you, did you chase some associations and groups or did, did they seek you out? Well, I mean, I, first of all, I do love it. It actually just, it, it gives me energy. I'm an extrovert. So all this kind of stuff gives me lots of energy. And I, um, I, it keeps me, it makes me want to pop out of bed every morning because I, I do love it. I probably speak at least twice a month at different venues across the nation. And, um, and the way I got into it was when I was retired, I, I focused on it and I had my company that I worked with sponsored me to go to some of the very prestigious conferences where I got a high level of education that I could never have access to in the past, just within my own industry. So I started to learn fascinating things about how industries kind of blend, they blend the lines among, you know, inclusion and diversity and things like that. And, um, and then I wanted to do something with that knowledge. Um, now, 
you know, getting back when I when I accepted the position with that other global firm a few years later, I um that was a great door opening for me because you know as, as a national VP, I was invited to many different venues to speak about the things I had learned, and and then slowly but surely, it's just kind of like someone sees you speak here, then they recommend you for some another venue and so on and so forth. To the point where now I have a, a media group that kind of handles and you know calls through all of the requests, and um and I love it. And I I get asked many times too you know about speaking fees and that kind of thing. And I always tell them just donate to a, a woman's cause, donate to a cause that about what I like to speak about, um and you know on and that's well all I need. I don't do this to make extra money. I do this because I care about it. And um, I'm not a professional speaker, but I, I'm very passionate about what I speak about, and I think I have um, good knowledge to share. Uh, lastly, uh, any uh, interesting, funny, exciting story uh, about the workplace or your life experience that you'd like to share? Oh, gosh. I probably have a lot of embarrassing and interesting stories <laughs> I could share. There's four girls in our family. I have a younger sister, a twin sister, and an older sister. And I always, I always like to tell the story about how, you know, we were raised by my parents with my dad, who's a semi-pro football player, Marine Corps sergeant, and, you know, hunted and fished every day of his life. Hmm. So when people always ask me, how did you get into this man's world? I'm like, well, you know, there's that. There's, there's that, that man who, um, you know, took us ice fishing when we were two years old kind of a thing. <laughs> um and the one thing that most people don't know is that I play the trumpet. So there's, play my, the trumpet. there's my thing. <laughs> school. It was high school. It was high school. It was jazz band and marching band. And right. so we definitely, um, all the old 80s songs. And that's Chicago and that type of thing. Oh, that's so. that's very serious. <laughs> all right. Well, thank, okay. thank you very much, Nancy, for sharing your trumpet story and all these other stories. Because... Well, your knowledge and your passion certainly came through in this discussion. So I'm sure the listeners are going to really enjoy it. So thank you, Nancy Nobrak. My pleasure. All right. My pleasure. Bye now. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Okay.